Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This is definitely not the work of aliens, they were quick to point out. Last week, a crew of public safety officials discovered something rather strange in the Utah desert. Flying a helicopter over that vast expanse of rock and sand, deep in the wilderness and miles from civilization, they caught a glimpse of something metal reflecting the sunlight down on the ground. Closer inspection revealed a 10-foot-tall rectangular monolith perfectly smooth, metallic, and utterly uncanny. Who had put it there, or why it was jutting out of the ground, remains a mystery. But it was definitely not the work of aliens, officials said. This monolith is clearly the sort of thing that humans can make in a place where humans go, a local astrophysics professor told CNN. Desert art is common in the American Southwest, he said, so I don't see any reason to think that it's anything other than that. I'm assuming it was a new wave artist or something, the helicopter pilot who discovered the artifact told journalists. But you know, can we just not jump to conclusions so quickly here? I mean, yeah, sure, you could say that Occam's razor demands the simplest explanation. Obviously, it was an artist who put it there. But how do you explain, then, that the monolith mysteriously vanished only days later, leaving no trace of its existence? Well, yeah, sure, a tourist apparently says that he saw a crew of guys come down in the middle of the night and tear the thing down and haul it off in a pickup truck. But how do we know that they weren't aliens, too? Are we just assuming that they're human because they were driving a Ford F-150? And how about the fact that after it disappeared, a second monolith, almost identical to the first, materialized in the mountains of Romania on the other side of the world? Definitely not the work of aliens, they said. Well, you know what? They're probably right. But... That doesn't mean they have to rain on everyone's parade. After all, isn't imagination what truly makes us human? I took a philosophy course back in college on the films of Stanley Kubrick, who directed 2001, A Space Odyssey, in 1968. It's an enigmatic film, to say the least, certainly not to everyone's taste alienating some of its earliest audiences by spending its entire first half hour in the company of screaming monkeys, hanging out and beating each other with sticks with nary a word of dialogue or exposition to be found. The film's opening scenes are, frankly, a little bit boring, save for the inclusion of the strange obsidian monolith that the primates seem to organize their little society around. The alien sculpture appears to be influencing them somehow, inspiring them to use the first rudimentary tools 
for acts of both creation and murder. The obelisk appears again later in the film, discovered by a team of astronauts on the surface of the moon. And there, it again seems to kickstart a kind of evolutionary leap for humanity, guiding them silently towards advanced technology, artificial intelligence, and interstellar travel. Most agree that Kubrick's film is a story about human evolution. First from apes to men and women, and later to something altogether more remarkable and even godlike as we transcend our own humanity. The film's obsidian monoliths serve a Promethean purpose, guiding humanity towards its next evolution, much like the discovery of fire. But what of the monoliths in Utah and Romania then? Are they also harbingers of evolutionary change for our species? Well, probably not. But such a herald did live in the wilderness once, and his name was John. John the Baptist was a little bit like a Neanderthal himself, compared to most folks in those days anyway. He lived in a cave, clothed himself in animal skins, and ate insects. He was not, in the way that most people understand the term, civilized. But spiritually, John was ahead of his time. He was a man of great imagination and vision, a prophet, the harbinger of a new era. John foresaw the advent of a new kind of humanity the prototype of a spiritually evolved being embodied in Jesus of Nazareth. I baptize you with water, John tells anyone who will listen, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire. In its biblical context, we often think of fire as something to do with punishment or maybe purification. But fire is also a symbol of enlightenment. Fire and the ability to make and use it is what first separated humanity from the rest of the animal kingdom. Its discovery was the catalyst, in many ways, for civilization as we know it. I made a passing reference a moment ago to Prometheus. As you may recall, Prometheus was a titan of Greek mythology, one of the elder divinities who stole fire from the other gods and shared it with human beings, helping them to build the earliest civilizations. And for that transgression, Zeus chained him to a rock for eternity and heaped unspeakable torments upon him. And while his intentions were good within the context of the myth, I do believe that Prometheus made a mistake. You see, he believed that civilization makes people civilized. John the Baptist knows better. That's why he lived in the wilderness like a caveman. He knows well the difference between cultural and spiritual enlightenment. He knows that industry and fancy clothes and commerce and technology are not what make us human, at least not the kind of humans that we have the potential to be. 
Now, I'm the last person in the world to argue that the wilderness is inherently superior to civilization as we usually define it. I've never even been properly camping unless you count the time that I slept in my car. But even though I'm completely reliant on the grid of technology, supply chains, laws, infrastructure, and industry that comprise modern civilization, I am also keenly aware of its limitations. Between the years of 1954 and 1972, a behavioral scientist by the name of John B. Calhoun was working at the National Institute of Mental Health where he ran an experiment on lab mice that he simply called Universe 25. Now, technically, that was the final name. He ran the experiment 25 times, each with chillingly similar results. Now, this was not a cruel experiment for all of you animal lovers out there. On the contrary, Calhoun made every effort to provide these mice with anything and everything they could possibly need or desire. Ample living quarters, diversions, community, access to healthy mates, and endless supplies of food and water. Universe 25 was, in fact, a mouse utopia. Now, philosophers have long tried to envision what utopia might look like, from Plato's Republic to Moore's Leviathan, they have tried to construct ideal societies. But theoretically, when followed to their logical conclusion, these often result in either totalitarian regimes or failed states. I enjoyed a story many years ago that toyed with Ayn Rand's vision of a society populated entirely by scientists and inventors and industrialists free of any kind of regulation, as she imagined in her novel, Atlas Shrugged. For her, that was a kind of utopia. But in this story, they destroyed themselves with unchecked ambition and unethical science, half of them evolving into something monstrous that preyed on the rest. Likewise, after running the rodent simulation 25 times over the course of 18 years, Calhoun witnessed pathologically disturbing behavior in the mice. While the massive structure was built to comfortably sustain as many as 3,800 mice, population growth always peaked somewhere around 2,200 before experiencing a precipitous decline. The pattern was always the same. The population would explode in the first few months and then level off as the mice began to demonstrate more antisocial and destructive tendencies. The more dominant males would hoard resources and lash out at others, even the infants, biting and scratching them. Female mice would grow increasingly uninterested in rearing their young, often leaving them to fend for themselves, resulting in an infant mortality rate of up to 90%. And eventually, without fail, the entire colony would collapse and go extinct. I shall speak largely of mice, Calhoun later reported of Universe 25, but my thoughts are on man, on healing, on life and its evolution. Calhoun came to realize Prometheus' error 
that civilization does not make one civilized. You can dress up your dog in a suit and a top hat, and you probably should from time to time just for fun, but that does not make it a human being. Imagination makes us human, not just raw ingenuity, but imagination that can envision a more enlightened world like John did, like Jesus did. We often fool ourselves into thinking that technological progress will help us evolve as a species, just as we believe that satisfaction of base desires will make us happy. The mice of Universe 25, if they are anything at all like us, prove that neither of these things are true. Material progress is not bad or wrong, but evolution of our species that does not account for spiritual or moral progress will not end well. The French priest and philosopher Teilhard de Chardin wrote extensively about something that he calls the Omega Point. It was a controversial idea at the time, back in the early 19th century, especially for a Catholic priest, because Teilhard basically affirmed Darwin's theory of evolution and then elevated it to a kind of cosmic significance. Yes, he argued, humankind likely evolved from other species millions of years ago. But according to his theology, we are still evolving right now. Not necessarily in a physical sense. You may recall Conan O'Brien's late show segment from the 90s in which he predicted what would happen in the year 2000. In the year 2000, human beings will have a lifespan of 200 years, he proclaimed, and a wingspan of up to 12 feet. No, Teilhard was not especially concerned with physical evolution. He believed, rather, in a culmination of scientific, cultural, and most importantly, spiritual evolution, all intertwined, that would eventually lead humanity towards what he called the omega point, the pinnacle of human potential foretold by John the Baptist, embodied by Jesus Christ, the only human being to have ever attained it. Jesus, God incarnate, love incarnate, is the omega point. And following him, we strive to evolve into something more than what we have been. The monoliths in the wilderness are probably not the work of aliens. They probably aren't heralds of the next phase of human evolution put there by some higher power to guide us. But such a herald was found in the desert wilderness of first century Galilee, proclaiming the one who would guide us towards a higher, more enlightened state of being, Jesus, better than Promethean fire, guides us towards a more compassionate and, yes, civilized civilization. Teilhard de Chardin said it best, I think, so I will leave you today with his words written in the early 19th century. Someday, 
after mastering the winds, the waves, the tides, and gravity, we shall harness for God the energies of love, he writes. And then, for a second time in the history of the world, man will have discovered fire. Amen. <laughs>